5: In ancient legend, Medusa was one of the three Gorgon monsters created to do battle with the gods. Anyone looking into the eyes of Medusa was instantly turned to stone. I have a gift for disaster.
4: You seem to have survived it.
5: I don't mean for me. I mean for others. He was found in his flat last night. Dead? Not quite, but he had been badly assaulted. But I assume he'll be all right then he will never be all right again I did not set fire to my school I did not touch the brakes of my father's car therefore therefore there must be something else and was there something else
6: what else could there be
5: I made it happen but you couldn't cause an accident miles away I made that accident happen if you say coincidence to me I will drive my fist through your face Somewhere deep within what's left of that brain, something is going on. It's grown stronger almost every hour. You know more about that brain than anyone. What is going on? I don't know. I made that school burn. The children, all of them. What am I? How can I will death? Could any of the other incidents Morlar felt responsible for be called uh, disasters?
6: Well... Yes, one of them could be described that way.
5: Were there any deaths involved? Yes. Doctor, when I get behind a wheel, I have an insane urge to kill all the devil's children we find what powers the sun and we make bombs of it we achieve power and we go mad we always destroy against our reason he believed he had the power to destroy a plane to shatter a cathedral he is alive so is the belief he said he would do it i believe he will i am the man with the power to create catastrophe
2: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining you once again is Ms. Agatha Luz.
0: Hi, thank you for having me back. I'm very excited to talk about this one, by the way.
2: Also back in the booth is Mr. Jeff Myers.
7: Hey, how's it going? It's uh, awesome to be back on. Thanks.
2: I am very surprised that neither one of you said, uh, I'm a man with the power to create catastrophe. Shocktober 2021 continues with a look at Jack Gold's The Medusa Touch. It's the story of John Morler, played by Richard Burton, a man with a special gift who is murdered in the first few minutes of the film. It then becomes an investigation by Lino Ventura as Detective Brunel, who tries to learn more about Morler, who murdered him, and why. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you haven't seen it, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. By the way, I understand that there's a new restoration of the film that should be released over the next few months, but right now it's fairly readily available to find on YouTube. This is a request from way back from Richard Baird, back when we had a request form on our website that's back before some loony Trump supporter started abusing it and using it as a way to insult me. So, Jeff, when was the first time you saw the Medusa Touch, and what did you think?
7: The first time I saw it, and probably the last time I saw it before getting ready for this, I think I was maybe 10, and I saw it on cable or HBO or something like that. I was fascinated, especially because it was at like a time where stories about ESP and telekinesis and mind powers were very uh, interesting to me as a kid. I'm afraid to admit that I actually stared at things and tried to move them with my mind uh, at 10 years old and, and failed horribly. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but the airplane scene truly like disturbed me as a kid. Of course, the next time I probably thought about The Medusa Touch after that was on 9-11, where I was like, oh my God, that's like that movie I saw when I was a kid. And Agatha, how about yourself?
0: I was actually preparing for this and that's the first time I experienced this movie. It does fall into a subgenre that the seventies had a lot. Very, very weird, interesting mind stuff. I'm thinking of, uh, coma and the fury that's escaping me. Yes. yes. Yeah. All of them teenagers and mental powers. It was just amazing. This is the first run through of this one. I've seen it a few times now. I'm trying to sit with it, if you know what I mean. Like, it has a, a lot of very interesting things going on structurally, which I'm sure we'll talk more about later. But, um yeah, overall, I dug it.
2: Yeah, I had never heard of this movie before there was the request for it. And I'm like, Medusa Touch, what the heck's going on with this? I thought for sure it would have been a guy going around kind of like King Midas, but, you know, turning people into stone. And I'm like, Right, okay, cool, That sounds like it could be interesting no absolutely nothing
0: within the first 10 minutes i was furious because uh that's not the medusa story at all at all and also medusa touch right there's no touching involved medusa and even our our character it's all the power of the visualization it is the gaze
2: no one knows what it's like to be the bad man behind blue eyes
7: And I think some of it is kind of based on the Medusa myth in the way that some horrors are just too awful to behold. Like that to stare at them is to invite catastrophe or, you know, to invite trauma. That was kind of the idea. Since the screenwriter clearly has accolades to his name, um, it was John Briley who wrote Children of the Damned, which... Another kind of telekinetic movie he wrote, like, whatever, 10 years earlier or 12 years earlier. And then, but he also went on to write Gandhi. So I think it was kind of his highfalutin way to deal with this kind of total B movie conceit.
2: When I read the book, and it's pretty good, actually, it's uh, Peter Van Greenway, and this was one of his earlier works, and the inspector character, who in the book is named Inspector Cherry, he comes back quite a few times through his work. I could track down... Three total Inspector Cherry books, and there might have been more, because there just isn't a whole lot of stuff written about Peter Van Greenaway. And then if you look up Peter Van Greenaway, most of the time you're going to find stuff about Peter Greenaway, the director, and not this author. So, got to be very careful with that van in there.
7: Uh, But the books are good, huh?
2: Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. The publisher seems to have a little bit more to do, the Derek Jacoby character, but the psychiatrist definitely is all over it. Though the psychiatrist in the book is a man and not a woman, uh, but you get a lot of the stuff about Zonfeld in the notebooks. And it's very similar as far as the structure goes, as far as that our main character is killed. I think he's killed even before the book starts uh, it yes. is inspector cherry coming in and seeing the dead body and then trying to put all this stuff together. The whole thing too, of the him suddenly coming back to life. Uh, I think they handle that very, very well in the movie. It is very much a surprise when the body starts to breathe again and they take him to the hospital and put him on life support. You know, we're talking about psychic films from 1978. This is the same year that Patrick comes out. Richard, Franklin's Patrick, where you have a guy in a hospital bed controlling things psychically, same exact year.
4: May we introduce you to Patrick? Is playing dead or is he? He isn't dead, he isn't alive. Only Kathy cares understands.
3: What do you call it when someone has the power to make things move around the room without touching them?
7: Magic. As Agatha touched on, there are so many movies of kind of this mix of paranoia and psychic powers, kind of in the period from roughly like 1975 to about nineteen early eighties. So you get you get the psychic killer, you get Things like the reincarnation of Peter Proud or even Escape to Witch Mountain, which is... Audrey
0: Rose. Yeah, yeah. Audrey
7: Rose. The Omen movies, Scanners, Videodrome, maybe Firestarters on the outer edge of the trend. I have to wonder if these kind of movies were an offshoot of kind of the new age ideas that were coming out of the hippie psychedelic period, which this idea of Mind expansion and hidden mysteries of the brain, and all that kind of stuff.
0: That's actually how I read it as well. Uh, it's during the time of a lot of drug uh, experimentation. On top of that, and the youth culture, and how the youth is very strange—they're almost alienesque to old, an older generation. So these stories coming forward from that is, I think, a way for adults to process
7: actually think in a weird way, you can make a connection to what's going on then with now with kind of the rise of conspiracy theories. Because I think it was this idea that, you know, this was the mid 70s, mid to late 70s, and things were so tumultuous, then you had this, this sense that things are out of control. And so instead of, and of course, you had the seventies conspiracy movies and paranoia movies. And it seems like this is kind of, these movies are kind of a, a merger of those two instincts, you know, conspiracy and mind expansion. And maybe we have control over things because the world seems so wildly out of control. I mean, if you remember the seventies were like wild inflation and Unemployment and union riots and power cuts and, you know, and war. Yeah, and war. Well, the Vietnam War had ended, but then there, you had the hostage taken, you know, in the late 70s in Iran. I mean, it was just a, a very tumultuous period. Things like
2: Firestarter and maybe even a little bit of scanners. There seems to be that kind of MK Ultra. Tinge to those. I would say even with The Fury as well. And then you get something like The Carillion Witness, which was also 1978, where you've got the whole idea of the plants are watching and it's that type of almost like spirit photography, but for plants. And, you know, if you talk nice to your plants, you're going to get one aura from it. If you talk mean to them, you'll get another aura from your plants.
6: I've been reading the experiments of Cleve Baxter. He attached a polygraph to the leaves of a plant and then threatened to burn it. When he thought about burning the plant, the needle on the polygraph jumped as if the plant could actually read his mind
2: wild, crazy stuff. And then as far as the movies go, I think since Carrie was so frickin' successful, and then you could even say things like The Exorcist, which was also just this huge phenomenon, kind of playing into the spirituality of stuff, but also a lot of powers and moving things around. And yeah, you talked about The Omen. I mean, it, it seems to go hand in hand. But with this, it's there is the whole church thing that happens at the end, but it doesn't really feel like he is a Satanist or has any sort of spiritual thing. It just feels like he's much more of a misanthrope and wants to tear down any sort of structure and just really prove that the whole system is rigged.
0: It seems like anarchy. He's attacked individuals who have wronged him in one way or another. Then he ups the stakes by, killing, like literally just murdering hundreds of people in a plane crash, to a church and nuclear power. So it seems that he's escalating. And if he's going to survive whatever nuclear disaster he has wrought, I don't know where he would go after that. And that scares me, just that thought of he's going to go beyond this.
7: Because it's a UK production, and it's 1978, and, you know, this is the same time as the Sex Pistols, and this whole film was like an ode to misanthropy, which was a great word uh, that you threw out there, Mike, because everything about this is like he's the living embodiment of raging against the machine as agatha was pointing out he's like he rages against family against school against marriage against the law against the church and the monarchy
6: hey johnny what are you rebelling against?
7: what do you got i also think of a movie like um network you know he's kind of a if Howard Beale had telekinetic powers, <laughs> right, this is what he would do because he, see, he sees only the worst in people. And what's even fascinating is he sees only the worst in himself. His hatred is kind of all consuming. And like you said, I think he, he, his eventual desire is apocalyptic that um, he's so anguished by how deeply rooted evil is in the human race that he intends to wipe it all away.
0: His profession was a writer. So he was an interpreter for other people. And he was involved in one way or another with the legal system. So he's acting as a judge. He's a recorder. He's separated himself from the rest of humanity and kind of put himself in a godlike position.
7: And there's that fantastic moment where he says to Zonfeld Why do I only have the power to destroy things? And he actually seems like it's painful to him. This is the curse of humanity, that all it can do is tear things down.
0: We don't witness him actually trying to do something good. So some of this could just be that he goes into some kind of rage and the rage takes over and he does this and he can't control it. But maybe if he'd spent some time trying to do something good with it instead of, oh, I'm going to make somebody jump from a building, maybe he would have done some good.
7: Okay, so I agree with you. But let me point out how terrible a therapist Zahnfeld
0: is. Oh, horrible, horrible therapist.
7: So Lee Remick plays Zahnfeld, the, the, the therapist he goes to see. And he he's saying to her, why is my power always destructive and she doesn't even ask, what do you think? She just basically her entire philosophy of being a therapist seems to be her saying, you're just crazy. Stop it.
0: She has a responsibility, a legal responsibility that if one of her clients threatens violence, she needs to re- it's like send this in. She needs to call the police and report it. And she well, I don't know. Is that true
7: in the UK? It's certainly here.
0: I would assume so. I can't imagine any therapist would hear what he has to say or witness the plane crash. And yeah. uh, yeah. Well,
7: I think we conclude that she's a pretty shitty therapist.
0: In fact, I felt like there was some kind of sexual tension between the two of them, which was weird.
7: Well,
2: yeah, that they gender swapped this therapist to a a woman, and then she's got those same pale eyes that he does. I was like, okay, this is interesting that they're going this route, because yeah, there does seem to be sexual tension between the two of them when there shouldn't be.
0: I don't know how it read in the book with the uh, therapist as a man, but Brunel has a line where he's like, you know, is he homosexual? And that kind of brings it even more forward. If that was in the book, that kind of tension would have been very interesting, but by swapping it, they're highlighting, no, I don't think he's that way. So the male, female sexual tension makes more sense.
7: There's a point where Brunel says to the other cop, when he asks about the therapist, he says, she's not your type. And then later on, they're awfully cozy in Lino Ventura's apartment with him cooking dinner for him and hiding in the kitchen like he's like as his wife. And I went, are they are they trying to s- imply that the police inspector is gay? I, I, or or am I just like or is this platonic and I'm I, I'm reading way too much into it?
0: It's a really great question. I had assumed that because he was basically an exchange student, he had a sponsor house, and that maybe the person he was with was his English sponsor. So he was teaching him how to cook something French. That's what I assumed. Although I really enjoy the fact that you can read a relationship, a sexual relationship with those two characters.
7: I'm I'm realizing... Anyone who's listening to this probably has who hasn't seen the movie is like, "What the hell is this movie?
0: Yeah, you definitely <laughs> need to see this one <laughs> and and
7: what I, and I would say like just you know as a quick quick little thumbnail, it's like. What is ingenious, I think a little bit about the script is this idea that it starts as a as a who done right? it right it starts as this guy is murdered and this mystery and they're even lining up the potential suspects with the neighbor the publisher and the there's the tramp who was
2: sitting outside yeah the, the former client yeah so they're lining up potential
7: suspects but then you're realizing, Oh, as they do these nested flashbacks, you're realizing that he's been going to a therapist because he claims that at first he could sense when disaster was going to happen. And then he realized he could actually cause it at will and whether his therapist believes him or not and all of this. And then as he's not murdered in the opening, he's in a coma. And then, of course, his brains signal is getting stronger and stronger even though he's in the hospital so it's this really interesting mashup of telekinetic i don't know horror thriller and whodunit
2: we should talk a little bit more about that structure because it is interesting the way that brunel let's say brunel is at the top and he is the one doing the investigation and then he keeps let's say dipping down into the suspects and the suspects will give him flashbacks. And a lot of times the flashbacks are such that we really shouldn't even be seeing what they are showing us in the flashbacks. They will show us like the neighbor the neighbor one is probably my favorite, where the neighbor's talking about how his wife was yelling at him about this fish that had gone bad and that he had brought home this bad fish and that she, oh, she's a total harpy and just screaming and yelling at him. And then we're cutting to... Morler in the other room in his apartment, and he can hear the television, and the guy keeps turning up the TV trying to drown out his wife, and the wife is just screaming. And yes, we keep cutting back to him, and it's like, we shouldn't be seeing him. We don't know what he was doing because this is from the point of view of the neighbor.
0: The point of view here is a little messy, which is not great for a story. You really shouldn't have that. But I think in this case, it helps because everything is so nested, because we have flashbacks within flashbacks, having another kind of another point of view within that helps tie the story together rather than this is something told one point of view. This is what happened in the end.
7: Maybe Morler's power is such that he can invade other people's flashbacks.
0: That would be amazing. He's flashback to the future.
2: The Lino Ventura character, he never interacts with Morler when Morler is conscience. Like it is just him going to the hospital room. And then it is, like I said, him dipping into these witnesses. And then the witnesses will give their testimony, their memories of these things, mostly through the um lee remick character zahnfeld the psychiatrist and then her stories are then yeah primarily the flashbacks within flashbacks because it's her talking with the richard burton character with morler and then him telling these stories and then sometimes i think they're they even go deeper than that but it's just like okay so what are these stories and then we get to see his Basically in this movie we see almost his entire life history, especially his early days when he's got this really horrible nanny and she's kind of putting the fear of God into him and he ends up giving her what is it, measles? Measles, or something? Yeah. yeah. And Kills her. His mother is another Shrewish woman and her father's very henpecked. And he ends up moving a car and running them off
0: of a cliff. With an incredible stunt. Fantastic. Yeah. I yes. love it, that stunt. Yeah, yes. I watched it two or three times because even the dummies looked amazing. Yeah.
7: Yeah, no, it's terrific stunt. And and honestly, even the later on the plane crash, I know it's a model, but I thought it was really well done.
2: I thought it was great, yeah. And that's kind of the nice thing too is that when we start the movie, as uh, Brunel is coming through the city and going to Morler's place, we see the remnants of the plane crash. They're still pulling away the plane wreckage, which gives us a timeline, because then we actually get to see the plane crash later on through another Lee Remick flashback. So it's like, oh, okay, this must have just been very recently. So it's kind of nice that we are moving forward in time with the Brunel story as we're moving in time through the Lee Remick story as well, which is essentially the Morler story. So that's kind of a nice way that they're bringing us to the present.
0: I have something to kind of throw out there, just questioningly. What about the idea of them being unreliable narrators? We have Morler, who could just be insane. Like he could just literally have a very severe form of mental illness. And he may have influenced the psychiatrist and sh- he was just feeding her stories and now she's feeding us stories and they're not true.
7: Until you get to the church.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. Oh speaking of the church, oh my goodness. And so, the moon
7: and the moon. Well maybe not the moon landing.
0: I'm assuming you've both seen Edgar Wright's Hot Fuzz.
7: Edgar Wright
0: I have gone through that movie and found every movie reference I could, except one, the church scene when the top of it falls oh like a God. spire. It's from this. It <laughs> has to be from this.
2: I totally thought that, too. When I saw that cross fall, I was just waiting for Jimmy Carr or whatever to get his head exactly. smashed in.
3: Of course, that wasn't Jimmy Carr as Tim Messenger, but Adam Buxton.
0: Having seen this movie, I've completed my references for Hot Fuzz.
7: Did anyone count up how many minutes Richard Burton is in this movie? Like, I meant to, and then I forgot. I had heard that he shot his role very, very quickly. And three was weeks. Like, three weeks. I would be surprised if he's in 30 minutes of the film, in a 90-minute film. And I read that he got paid half a million pounds for, for his three-week shoot.
0: Oh, he's Richard Burton. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, I which is name. kind of
7: amazing because it's in many ways it's almost more like he's doing a narration than a performance. In some ways, because even when you see him, they lead to flashbacks where you're hearing him talk about things. So, and yet, even though he's in only thirty minutes and he's kind of the the the, the main draw, he's really good. His anger and righteousness and the way he seems haunted. By it as well. I know this was him at kind of his low point where he was, well, maybe I think he had just had his first comeback with Equus, but he was still in that drinking stage. And I was like, "Ah, this guy's got it. (laughs) I mean, he's always got it.
2: I felt really bad for Harry Andrews, the guy who plays the commissioner. And at first I thought the commissioner was going to be bent because of the way that he well, his goons, these other policemen, the way they roll up on Lito Ventura and it's like, no, no, the commissioner wants to talk, or associate commissioner, I should say, wants to talk to you. And then it's just like, Morler's your top case. And, you know, everything comes through me. And I was like, okay, yeah, something's going on with this guy. But no, he's on the up and up. But I felt so bad for him because in one year he gets crushed by a planet the
7: planet krypton and he gets crushed by a cathedral the poor guy i had mentioned earlier that the screenwriter was um john briley there are some terrific lines in this film it's like he really is giving burton some rich language i especially love when he faces his adulterous wife
5: and says, I have a gift for speaking the truth. It leaves a peculiar stench in her nostrils, something you have in common, I imagine.
7: Also, he calls God the great big nothing. <laughs> and he calls humanity an asylum of depravity, And then I wrote down his little his little um speech where he says, "It's God himself who should stand at the bar of public opinion. that almighty enemy of evil should face the jury of his victims, the helpless, the hopelessly deformed, the despairing. We are all the devil's children.
0: The interesting part about Morler's fate. The fact that he's in a coma and he's still doing all of this. And then he does die, but his power still goes on and it seems to be growing bigger. So, and in essence, he was tethered to his body, but now he is spirit and he's just going to continue doing all of this.
7: Yeah. It's like his hate is bigger, is bigger than he is.
0: I would have watched a sequel with just him hating on everybody in spirit form.
7: Uh, Although, uh, can we point out how hilariously bad the bleep, bloop, bleep, bloop of the brain (laughs)
3: stratter is so
7: bad. (laughs) I, every time it would go on and like you'd see his brain activity get bigger and bigger and I'd be like and then you'd hear bleep, 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 bleep. it just cracked me
2: up I was waiting for the more uh, standard, uh, you know, heart rate monitor rather than that weird EEG yeah. monitor that they had. He's also got that scrapbook. It kind of reminded me of uh, Nicholas Cage in Knowing, where it was just like all of these disasters, and I'm like, is he behind every single one of these? That's in this scrapbook. Is he keeping track of every
7: horrible thing that he's done?
0: It's like Annie Wilkes or Mister
7: Glass. Yeah, I have a bone to pick with that journal. Because they make a big deal of, there's a point where Lino Ventura goes, reads a passage that says, no sign of L.
0: Yes, what was that?
7: And then he goes to Zahnfeld and said, it said no sign of L. L, well, do you know who this L is? And she says no. And then that's it. <laughs> like,
0: like We never find out what L is. I got to figure
2: L is loveless because of the way that he is he basically gets thrown in prison because of Morler's ranting and raving against this judge, which I thought was a fantastic scene of his speech about how corrupt the whole system
5: is. The chief villainy of Mr. Lovelace's pamphlet lies in his open admission that he would do what he could to make a world saner and more humane than the world we live in. His phrase, not mine. He made curbside speeches... He even wrote to certain politicians and so-called princes of the... church. could you bring us to the charges? My lord, the prosecution makes much of the defendant's professed wish to see the Imperial War Museum destroyed. Why, the defendant asks, do we send busloads of children to gawp at that collection of tributes to authorized murder? A crime? Well, look at this venerable courtroom. We're supposed to be civilized, aren't we? Yet we do shove innocence into that chamber of horrors, stuffed with pain and mutilation and death and say, look, children, this is what put the great in Britain. But where in that asylum of grotesques do we find framed the armament manufacturer's checkbook together with grandpa's piss-pathetic medal and his artificial leg? I, for one, am with the defendant. If I knew how, I would blow the bloody place sky high. For which thought, if memory serves... The prosecution argues, if a man can be so scathing about our bloodied, militaristic past, what is he not capable of? I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, he is not capable of a non-event. There was no bomb, no threats, no conspiracy. You know it, the prosecution knows it, I know it, the judge knows it. It is not the defendant who should be on trial here, but a besotted establishment, who can cheerfully send a generation to slaughter in the name of war, and yet has the audacity to bring a hapless fool like Lovelace to trial for uttering words. There was no crime. Therefore, there can be no sentence.
2: And then Lovelace gets punished for his actions. And then I think it's Lovelace which um, when he talks to Derek Jacoby, Jacoby's like, oh, there was a tramp outside on this bench the whole time and the tramp disappeared. And I'm pretty sure that that's Loveless. But then unfortunately, one of the bad things about this movie, I've been singing its praises the whole time, is there's a lot of stuff that gets thrown out in dialogue. And so you're just like, wait, did they just say that Loveless died? Oh yeah, I guess they did. So there goes that whole thread. It was like, all right, thank you so much, movie. I mean, that works in a book because everything is being said and not, you know, shown. But it's like, please, you should have had more conclusion to that character.
0: There's something very interesting that he seems to attack more women individually than men. It's like his uh, nursemaid, I think she was, his mother, the woman next door she wants you know he has her commit suicide so on an individual level he seems to attack women
2: i have to say i laughed my ass off with the next door neighbor
0: the music when she jumped out i was like why are they playing this music and then i realized no it's it's diegetic it's actually there this is the cartoon <laughs> it just plays it for fun
1: i don't know why i go on i just don't know why i'll open a
5: ravioli. It'll be all right.
1: God, I'd rather die. I'd rather get it over with before you kill me. Stop talking like that. You wouldn't care.
5: None of you care.
6: I'm a good night to jump. End
5: it all. For God's sakes, woman, jump.
7: I think he's a misanthrope. I think he has problems with everyone. If there's um, misogyny going on, it's 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 probably in the writer, not the character, because because I would say he he writes him as like even though in many cases most well it's two more women than men because in the other cases it's the men that are with the women when they die.
0: There's something to be said for the fact that he actually does individually harm more women than men, but we are told he has the medusa touch but he's actually using the male gaze there is a really really important anti-feminist streak in him i'm not
7: totally i mean he burns down an entire boys school so if you want to if you want to tally up the males i
0: said on an on an individual basis oh, okay like this one person
2: that he kills the four boys along with that headmaster that he uh well he does murder the judge
7: gives him a heart attack and everyone on the airplane and everyone in the church and
0: I still stand very firmly in that this is the male gaze and a ownership over the Medusa story which is interesting because the Medusa story is actually very very feminist as well I mean she wasn't born a monster she was punished
2: I mentioned The Exorcist earlier. I was reminded a little bit of uh, The Exorcist when it came to the astronauts. And, of course, I think that story was based a little bit upon uh, Apollo 13, if Apollo 13 hadn't worked out. But it also reminded me a little bit of the character that, uh well, Scott Wilson ends up playing him in the ninth configuration. But um, he was a character at the party uh, in The Exorcist that we have this uh astronaut character, and that Reagan comes down and tells him, you're going to die up there. I think by 78, we had stopped doing a lot of the missions, so it kind of fits more in line with 73 when the book came out. Um,
7: but, you know, David Bowie's Space Oddity was huge, and, you know that idea being lost in space, I think.
2: And I do like how that's like the disaster against which the entire beginning of the movie plays that they even have that whole thing about was the TV on or off when the body was found. And it's like, oh, the Porter was so interested in the news that he ended up turning on the TV, which again, doesn't really make sense because the TV was on when he was murdered. Yeah. That
7: part I don't get either. If you look at Morler and the inspector, they're both men that kind of view mankind at its worst, but their responses are so radically different. You know, if you're a police inspector, you see some of the worst shit there is. And yet, ethically, he, he has a very different track than Morlar does.
2: The one thing I didn't pick up on when I was reading the book is that the name of the spacecraft was the Achilles 6.
3: <laughs> nice. Really?
2: You're going to call your spaceship the Achilles? That seems
7: kind of bad. One thing that I was kind of impressed with from a filmmaking perspective was the use of editing. The editing is really, it's sharp and it's abrupt and tight and extremely effective. You don't usually see that approach to flashbacks where you're moving through different times with just these kind of hard cut shifts and yet, whoever was in the editing room, boy, my kudos to them because they they just keep this movie moving.
2: The one that got me was the Derek Jacobi interview, the publisher it's Ventura interviewing him, and at one point, they just cut to Jacoby, and he's telling you know what had gone on with Morler. And then the camera just pans over and there's Morler. Like that's how we enter into that flashback is just through a pan. That was really nice.
7: It's the I mean the movie certainly has its problems, but there's so much smart work that's being done in it that I couldn't help but be impressed. And and like you said, there's that and you know that some of it also comes from the script where there were these call and responses in the dialogue that would transcend time where someone would say something in the past and it would inspire a reply back in the present.
2: Jack Gould, the director, I mostly know him through the film who AKA RoboMan, which is a horrible title. <laughs> and it's kind of a, kind of a strange film. It's uh, one of those, you know, I'm obsessed with uh, Elliot Gould movies from the seventies. And it's this, strange thing about this guy coming back as a uh, hostage from East Germany and he's wearing this metal mask and it's based on a real pulpy science fiction book and you don't know is it really the guy inside of the mask is it not the guy and then Gould is I think his handler or something but that's the only thing I really know him from and I know he did a few other things but it's like when you look at his best known for credits on IMDB it's like no, I can't say I really know any of these. Like, Ace is high, I've heard of, but the rest of them, mm I do not know these other movies that he did, but I thought he really handled this very artfully.
7: Yeah, and I love that um, he was quoted as saying about the movie that he agrees with Mauler's opinions. I was like, ah, oh, that's pretty badass. The <laughs> UK in the 70s, I mean, that was a period of bombings and union fights and the Troubles were still going on big time. The estates were falling apart. The government was like at an all-time high of corruption. And there's a reason the punk movement came
4: out of that.
2: And I like how they pepper through the wind scale stuff, the nuclear power plant, because if you're not paying attention when he writes wind scale at the end, I mean, they do have the light. It's the power plant. I'm like, oh, okay, good. Thank you for the people in the back. But it's nice that they have this throughout the entire film that there are newspaper headlines and just other mentions on news programs you know talking about these protesters so again another very current thing as far as having protests against nuclear power plants, because they were pretty darn unsafe. And this was around the time of like three mile Island. I can't remember when the China syndrome came out, but you know, this is uh, real life stuff that's going on. And so, yeah, he's just going to exploit that and yeah, have a big old meltdown and turn uh, England into Chernobyl.
0: Plus I've got to love a movie that is telling you a story that you might not realize you're being told through media that searching with John Cho does that exact same thing during the whole film. There's an entirely different story all through the news items. The most famous is uh, there's war of the worlds, of course, even though that's, you know, manufactured that way, but night of the living dead, how it tells so much of the story through radio and, and journalism.
7: It's a way to save money on your budget.
0: It has a practical application.
7: I wonder if we should talk about what's really bad about the movie. The big one for me is the body double in the hospital bed, who is so clearly not Richard Burton.
2: I was okay with that. I was really all right with that.
0: The title makes me mad. There's no touching.
2: You know, it's like I'm touching you with my mind. No touching and no turning to stone. I'm like,
0: right. Well, although, although the therapist does say that, you know, he looked at her and she felt like she'd turned to stone at that one time we get a reference to it. At first,
7: I admit I was afraid. Should I was petrified? And they keep going to the shot of his eyes. And it kept reminding me of um, Clash of the Titans and uh, the Harryhausen. Oh, yeah, the eye light, light Medusa? yeah, the yeah. eye light goes on Medusa. I kept going, oh, that's that's very similar. What did what did you think of the insertion of a jump scare in the movie?
2: That was so weird. What the hell was going on there? And I couldn't tell if that was in the hospital or someplace else. I'm
0: sorry, which one is this? It, it's it was
2: his office when that ghost pops out and the music blares out. Oh, you
0: know, yeah. So-
7: I was like, what is happening? I just kept thinking, okay, some producer must have said, there's no jumps, there's no scares. We have to put one in. <laughs> Where's the cat that suddenly you know appears through the window and makes everybody jump? That was strange to me.
2: And I felt kind of bad for Lino Ventura. I kept wanting to hear what would it have sounded like with his regular voice. I mean, I thought the dubbing was good. It really matched up with his mouth very well, and it didn't feel like it was coming from another room. But I would have liked to have heard what Ventura could have brought to the performance.
7: Although Ventura said that he liked the job that that actor did.
2: And he kept a little bit of a French accent. So, I mean, I don't know if Ventura's was just way too thick, but... I don't know. I, I like him so much. I never realized how short Lena Ventura is until <laughs> Lee Remick was like towering over him. And I was like, is she wearing heels? She sure really shouldn't be wearing heels. Or maybe that's just how tall she is and how short he is. And there were a couple of times where he was with other policemen and he's the shortest guy in the room.
7: I thought all the stunts and effects were particularly effective. But there were a couple of shots of the cathedral collapse where I was like, <laughs> where like the giant bell falls and bounces a few times <laughs> or a pillar falls over and lands on someone and then kind of bounces up. And I'm like, okay, this is reminding me just a tad of those old Hercules movies.
0: I'm not sure at the time and probably with their budget, they could have done better when it came to those stunts, especially since there were people there. So for safety foam, I guess. Has yes, been used.
7: Yeah. I'm sure. Uh-huh. So, did they suggest in his marriage that he and his wife have had miscarriages? At least
2: one,
0: sort of, yeah.
7: When
2: she gave birth, it was to a quote monster.
7: Oh, that's right. He
2: does, he talks about how it 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 died within the week, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief afterwards. Right,
7: and then he has that horrible line that he says to her when she's leaving with her lover. And he said that the only good thing she the only thing she was good at was producing vegetables. Oh, that's horrifying.
0: It is, but she was also blatantly cheating on him and about to walk out the door. So part of me understands that he went there, but yeah, it's, it's not great.
7: I love that. Her lover says you're as awful as she said, <laughs> like, like he was skeptical how awful he could be. And I'm like, well, you're the one wearing that shirt. Buddy. Oh my God. Yes. I love the 70s idea of who would be a sexy star when you're not really using a sexy star in the role. Like, you're getting some day player, and then you're going, really, is this who you think would be, like, the the Belle of the UK film scene?
2: Right. I'm like, where's Malcolm McDowell for a cameo? with Somebody. (laughs) Exactly. What really got me was... Just that no one wants to believe them at the end when it came to, to the cathedral. And you can see all the rock and debris falling. And the guy's like, Oh yeah, it's just the lorries. Uh, yeah, they, they make the <laughs> ground tremble. And I'm like, really? You guys Not are- that mm. much.
0: <laughs> I'm actually surprised they didn't start talking about, Oh yes, it's God. He's telling us to come into the church more often. Come into his house. But no, it's, it's the lorries. It's, uh, the fault of technology.
2: That's why we need to have this big fundraiser and invite all of these luminaries here so that we can afford a new church. I'm like, you guys don't get taxed. You should
7: have plenty of money. What did you think of all the little insert of things like the screen painting and the Escher print? And
0: I did not enjoy it because it did not make any sense to me. Um, my background, I have a huge background in art history, so it felt like, oh, well, there's a creepy painting, and oh, there's a weird drawing. So it didn't hold any resonance for me the way it should have. I can see how it would work for other people, but no. It
7: seemed to me like it was cherry-picking style that New Age is sampling other pieces of art because it has some mystical or mystery, uh, mysteriousness about it, and That way, it just seems to be saying something when it really isn't saying anything.
2: Yeah, I kind of wish that he had just stuck to, like, I don't know, a Bosch or a Goya or something.
0: Or something much more modern. Because, I mean, the 70s, we were all the way through abstract art and into contemporary art. So it would have made more sense to have a I Fear the Future through something like Warhol.
7: Or, yeah, or anything indicating rage that which is clearly what this is all about. Like there is this British take on misanthropy that is so particular to the culture. You know, this movie seems to be like, let's take that out to the nth power. And I feel like they're there. They missed opportunities to kind of maybe connect the historical dots to this kind of loathing of man towards his fellow man.
2: Yeah, and there's even the point where Ventura is going through the other drawings or paintings that they have, and I was like, okay, well, here's your opportunity to have some stuff, if this is Morler's work, like, really show something, or if this is just more stuff that he's collected again, here's your opportunity to show a little bit more than just an Escher and a a monk, so, like, please, let's have something better. No. And then it was kind of interesting too that he is legend nearly to death with a Napoleon statue. It was like,
0: Napoleon. I was trying to figure out which guy it was.
2: Is that because Napoleon was an egomaniac? Like what, what, why would it be Napoleon of all people?
7: There there's just this kind of um grab bag of ideas they threw in without connecting it to anything and there's part of me that wonders is was that in the script? Was that made on set? Was that just random production design people? Was that the director suddenly going, oh, you know, it would be good a shot of the screen? (laughs) Yeah, where you're like, "Well, well, yeah, but what the hell does that have to do with the rest of the movie?
2: And if it was left in the background, that would be one thing, but they really focus on that.
7: I did think it was interesting that one of the reasons Burton only shot on this for three weeks was that he had to, he literally, I guess, left the day after finishing his shoot here to go do wild geese another very bad movie with him or, or maybe you disagree but i thought
2: I, I was sent that blu-ray i don't know how long ago and i still haven't put it in so that's not making me really want to rush and watch it it's pretty bad
7: when you look at his filmography he's gigging you know, he's just kind of moving from one gig to another, and I'm gonna guess he didn't give much thought to this after he left it.
2: Well, it is one of those movies, like we were saying, that really didn't have the shelf life afterwards that two of the three of us are like, what is this movie?
7: Although supposedly
2: it did respectively in the UK. Which is fine. I, I mean, I was very surprised and delighted when I finally sat down and watched this. I was like, oh, okay. wasn't bad, and I enjoyed myself while i was watching it
7: i did think it was overblown that roger ebert labeled it the worst movie of 1978
0: what yeah uh, i haven't looked at the rest of the movies in that year but i really doubt i think there can be much worse
7: there, there was i can tell you i'm looking right now the swarm which was a truly awful Irwin allen movie <laughs>
2: I mentioned uh, The Carillion Witness earlier. I don't know about y'all, but I
7: wasn't a big fan of The Carillion Witness.
2: Not one
0: I've seen.
7: Well, and there was also Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club.
0: Oh, I will fight you. I will fight you because I grew up with that film and loving that film and – I tell my husband all the time, it's a terrible movie, but it's great. But it's and a terrible I, movie. Right. Right. Except, <laughs> except that I sat down with him and while it was playing, banged out what it's trying to say in terms of Americana and the youth culture and drugs and losing the identity of the small town. And so there's actually a lot in there for such a bad movie.
7: Okay, well, there's also the bad news bears go to Japan. Yeah, that hurt. Even with uh,
2: Thomas Boro Wakayama, that still was pretty bad.
7: Yeah, I mean, 1978 had some pretty bad movies, and I, I'm i sorry, Medusa Touch wouldn't be even in the bottom ten, I think. Ah!
6: But now look who's here in the balcony. It's our old friend Spot the Wonder Dog, our old pal who hates bad movies as much as we do, don't you, Spot? And Spot, <laughs> you ought to bark your little head off tonight because this time we've got the dogs of the year the two worst movies of 1978. And my choice is The Medusa Touch, which starred Richard Burton as a man with strange, out of control psychic powers. Just look at this ridiculous scene as Burton makes a plane fall out of the sky. Great special effects, huh? You can see that both the plane and the city are toy models, that came straight out of the hobby shop. And By the way, what is a great Shakespearean actor doing staring at an airplane anyway?
7: It's all gone haywire here.
6: It sure has gone haywire. You bet the whole film went haywire. The Medusa touch, not just bad, not just awful, but a true disaster in the dog of the year, making a convincing case for the possibility that Richard Burton is not only one of the best actors of our time, but also on his bad days, one of the worst. I agree, Roger, and coincidentally, my dog of the year
1: also stars richard burton this time in a would-be adventure film about mercenary white soldiers in black africa it's called the wild geese and it was pretty foul oh
7: i think medusa touch is a really interesting period in a bottle where you can see a lot of different influences and none of them are done terribly in this movie but it Really is where a lot of different things dovetail, whether you have, you know, the telekinesis movement, the upheaval of the 70s, anarchistic tendencies, Burton kind of trying to repair his career at this point. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things going on in this one movie.
2: I mean, what was there to repair? He had just done Exorcist to the heretic. Yes, he had. Granted, we did talk a lot in that episode about how he was just not really the right person for that role. He's supposed to be like the young, hot, sexy priest. Oh nope, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, nope nope. Two strikes against you right there.
0: It's a nope within a nope. We're going to have a flashback to nope. The psychic part, the tarot reader uh, or or fortune reader. I I'm wondering why that even happened. I think I remember the line of something about like this is where people go when they're scared or when they're lost. Why that specifically, and then nothing comes of it because the fortune teller's too scared.
4: I have a, a, a very varied clientele. <clears throat> Young girls who are pregnant. Stockbrokers whose <laughs> businesses are failing. <laughs> Middle-aged ladies in love with their hairdressers. <clears throat> we all need to know our destiny. Now, is it uh, just a simple reading you require, or... Just a simple reading. Something wrong. No. No, it's simple reading will be fine. Your hand, please, left hand. Yeah. No. There's been a recent tragedy. Yes. This. I. I. I, I'm. I'm I'm sorry. I'm not feeling. I'm not. I suggest that you go. I swear.
7: I have to say, I kind of love that scene. Like that perform that, uh, that the actor plays the fortune teller. I love how he's got his shtick and he's ready to go. And then it's like, no, let's not do this. <laughs> like...
2: That he actually is legit, that he actually does have the wherewithal as a psychic to be like, oh, this guy is for real, and he's a real he's going to be a real pain in my ass.
0: And also it ties into the new age culture that you'd been talking about.
2: Yeah. And that's Michael Hordern as the fortune teller. And he's one of these guys where it's just like, Oh, I've seen him. He had 203 credits before he passed away. He was in a shit ton of things. So you look at him, you're just like, I've seen you before pretty much my entire life. Sir. Yeah.
7: And there's, I think there's this thing in with British actors that, I mean, maybe it was a little more true in the, in the studio system days, but British actors are always kind of gigging. Like they, they move from radio to the stage, to television, to film pretty seamlessly. And it's because everything's in London. London's like kind of the hub for all of this. And so to keep working, they're finding work in multiple venues, whereas our system is a little different. For a long time, people in films wouldn't appear on television and vice versa. And I mean, those lines, of course, have kind of erased. But uh, and now everybody seems to have a podcast. But I think it's interesting that culturally, when you start seeing all these British actors and you're recognizing them, and then you kind of think about how their careers actually operate, you start to realize, oh, that's why they're in 200 things. And I've seen them all over the place. Well, when Philip
2: Stone shows up as uh, one of the religious guys, I was just like, oh, hey, it's Delbert Grady. And then (laughs) we had talked about him a few months ago when we talked about, oh, lucky man, because he shows up in there again as uh, a guy who's interrogating Malcolm McDowell. So it's like, All these familiar faces. I mean, and uh, I mentioned uh, Harry Andrews. He's another guy uh, who is just, as soon as he shows up, I'm like, man, that jawline. I know that jawline so well because he's got such a distinct look to him. Let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages.
1: Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons?
2: there's got to be a better way
1: now there is with Good Job Brain an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes
0: comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image thanks Good Job Brain
1: Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free it's a podcast Good Job
3: Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him – and third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything. You desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b o o t h at adamandeve.com
1: Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the projection booth are talking about good party cinema related stuff. Go here for the cinema, come to us for the laughs
7: afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday.
4: It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. And everybody is there, even Carrie White. The girl everyone makes fun of. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. The girl with the strange power. But tonight, no one will laugh at Carrie. She's with the best-looking boy in the senior class. She'll be voted queen of the prom. For Carrie, it will be a dream come true. For everyone else, it will be a nightmare. (coughs) Carrie, a new film by Brian De Palma, based on the chilling bestseller. Carrie, from United Artists, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. The silent partner has your number and now your
5: number is up the silent partner a film that begins with a crime of sheer genius builds to a climax of sheer terror and one night when you come home you'll find me waiting for you that'll be the night you'll wish you'd never been born don't miss elliot gould christopher Plummer, and suzanne york in the silent partner certificate x all over london and at the classic oxford street scene leicester square and the abc's fulham road in bayswater now
2: that's right. We are kicking off Noir November twenty twenty one with a look at Daryl Duke's *The Silent Partner*, also released in nineteen seventy eight. Great movie. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Great yes. movie. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Agatha and Jeff. So, Jeff, what is happening with you, sir? Stuff I
7: actually weirdly can't talk about, but lots of cool film stuff. Lots of projects that are—I don't want to jinx—they're on the precipice of maybe happening. So, yay! Knock on wood spin those spin those prayer wheels and agatha what's new with you
0: i co-host with my husband cinema spection and i now i work for our local movie theater we're kind of raising it up from the dead and recreating it and we live in salem massachusetts so this month we're doing all horror films classic they're fantastic and art i make a lot of art and i think you saw online that i i was selling today
2: I did, and great stuff. Is there a good place for people to uh, keep up with you and your art?
0: Just my Instagram, which I'm horrible at updating, and I promise I'll get better at it, which is Hagatha. So it's H-A-G-A-T-H-A and then L-U-Z, and that's the Instagram.
7: It was Hagatha all along.
2: Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, please visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth and Richard Burton take over the world.